Good morning. Hi, I'm John Martin. I'm uh, helping check in your kids and work with Celebrate Recovery. And you can clap. It's all right. <laughs> well, not that much. Now I'm blushing. Um, we're going to read from Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 15. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made the heaven, the heaven of the heavens and with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of the heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light them in the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them, commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And we pray that uh, it would work its way into into who we are, that it would become the fiber of our being. So we open our hearts to the work of the Spirit this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, any Chiefs fans here this morning? A few of you? Chief haters over here, no doubt. (laughs) Any 49ers fans? Vikings fans? Hey, all three of you, you're my people right there. 
<laughs> Any Travis, Kelsey, Taylor Swift fans? No judgment, no judgment, come on. It's all a CIA psyop. It, just kidding. So I want to start this morning. I just want to uh, tell you a story. It's been around forever, kind of a classical story. But two kids, Johnny and Mary, were playing outside. They lived on a farm. And uh, they, they only had a few animals. They were pretty poor. But they're playing around, and they're, they're chucking rocks uh, and that kind of thing. And Johnny throws a rock. He's not trying to, but he hits their prize rooster kills it dead and so not wanting the parents to find out Johnny and Mary uh, they they bury the rooster uh, behind the barn and eventually of course the parents said hey have you guys seen the rooster and they're both like no no we haven't seen the rooster so later that day, as per usual, mom is talking to Mary, the daughter, and says, honey, would you, uh, would you clean your room? And, and Mary says, sure. And she goes to Johnny and says, Johnny, you need to clean my room. <laughs> yeah. And Johnny says, what? I'm not cleaning your room. And Mary says, the rooster. So Johnny cleans her room. The next day, the mom comes to Mary again for chore duties and, and says, Mary, I need you to clean and wax the kitchen floor. And so Mary goes off to Johnny and says, Johnny, you need to clean and wax the kitchen floor. Johnny's like, you're crazy. I do not. Johnny, the rooster. So he cleans and waxes the floor. So, Johnny eventually was overcome with guilt. And so with tears in his eyes, he goes to his mom. He says, Mom, I'm so sorry. We were playing behind the barn, throwing rocks to scare the animal. I accidentally threw a rock that hit our rooster right in the head and it killed him. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And his mom forgave him and hugged him. And, you know, and it was just a beautiful scene. So Johnny, now out from under the weight of the guilt, feeling relieved and happy. Next day, mom asks Mary to mow the lawn and do some yard work. Mary goes to Johnny, says, Johnny, you need to mow the lawn and do some yard work for me. And Johnny says, I do not. And she says, Johnny, the rooster. And Johnny looks her in the eye and says, what rooster? We are in the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. The wall is built, the gates are hung. A six hour sermon was preached, which revealed that every year on a certain date, God's people were to build booths or huts and camp out in them for a week to commemorate the Exodus. It was called the Feast of Tabernacles. They read it in the word and then they did it because they read it. And so thousands of families camping in and around Jerusalem for a week, having lots of fun, lots of Bible study going on, and lots of discussion about the Lord. It's now a couple of days after the Feast of Tabernacles has concluded, and once again, they are gathering for Bible study. This time, 
they only go for three hours. Now, I'm only going to go for two, so I think that that's pretty <laughs> fair. <laughs> so after three hours of Bible study, they launch into three hours of confession, confession of their sins and worship. Confession turns into worship. That's the way it works, they go together. When the word of God is preached to a heart that's soft and receptive, we encounter the God of the word. And when we encounter the God of the word, our lives are laid bare. And when our lives are laid bare, our sins are exposed. When our sins are exposed, we then, at least we can, confess them and receive forgiveness. And when we receive forgiveness, the natural response is joy and worship. So let's talk about confession and worship this morning. It's at the center of our passage. In the story of Johnny and Mary, they were, there were clear consequences for Johnny hiding his sin, weren't there? And there were clear consequences for him confessing his sin. So while Johnny hid his sin, his sin was leveraged against him. When he confessed his sin, his sister's power was taken away from her, and he was free. He was courageous. When he confessed his sin, Johnny became joyful once again. And sin is like that. Confession of sin robs it of his power. So we're asking the question this morning, what is confession? Confession is not a sacrament that you do every, as we did when I was growing up in the Catholic Church, that you do every, you know, I think you're supposed to do it at least once every six months. <laughs> so it's not, it's not something that you do as a sacrament and a work unto the Lord. It's an internal relationship with God where you invite God into the depths of who you are. Martin Luther famously nailed his 95 theses on that door in Wittenberg, Germany. And do you know what the very first thesis was? It states, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The entire life. It never stops. Repentance and confession go together. So the first thing, number one this morning from our text, to confess our sins, we must see them as God sees them. The only way we're going to confess our sins is to see our actions or our attitudes as God sees them. So this is found in the New Testament in 1 John 1, 9, famous verse. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So confess is from a compound Greek word, homo logeo. Homo means same, you know, homogenous, same. Logeo means speak. So together it means speak the same, say the same thing. So the idea is when we confess our sins to God, we are saying the same thing that God says about them. We're coming into agreement with the Lord. 
Yes, this attitude is bad. Yes, Lord, the things that I said to that person were wrong. Yes, Lord, and I confess my sin to you. And so when we refuse to hide our sins or blame others for our sins or justify our sins, but rather confess them to God, embracing his opinion of that thing that we did, here's what happens. We're nurturing a heart of humility at that point. We're nurturing a humble heart. Humility is the, the, the bedrock virtue. It's, it's the soil in which all of the other virtues grow. It's the conduit of grace and blessing. How do I know? Because the Bible says so. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Do you wanna see the spigot of grace and blessing turned off in your life? Puff out your chest, justify your sins, always be right, everybody else is wrong. No grace gonna be flowing into your life for a while till you get that sorted out. So we ought to be cultivating a humble spirit. Don't give yourself a pass. Do you want the grace and the blessing to flow? Confess your sins. Confession brings freedom and joy. After David came clean uh, about his sin of adultery and then all the sins that followed to, to cover it up, you know, including murder essentially, lots of lies, he wrote this after he confessed. Bless, Psalm 32, blessed is he or is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom, and blessed, it's oh how happy, oh how joyful, oh how satisfied. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I'm not covering up and hiding stuff anymore. Man, it feels so good to not have deceit in me. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. But then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. So David, after covering up for better part of a year and hiding his sin, finally comes clean. And, you know, a year of anxiety and emotional turmoil and depression and all the rest. After that, he confesses his sin and joy and blessedness and freedom come flowing back into his life to the degree that he made a vow at that point. I will confess my transgressions to the, hey, I'm done hiding. When I screw up, I am going to confess it to the Lord. Have you made that commitment to God? I'm gonna confess my sins. I'm not gonna hide, I'm not gonna justify, I'm not gonna excuse, I'm gonna confess. I've discovered the joy that comes of having an open and transparent walk with God. Secondly, number two, confession is the result of walking in the light, of walking in the light. First John 1, 5 says, this is the message that we've heard from him and from Jesus and proclaim to you that God is light. 
In him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Man, there's a lot in that passage. But let's just start with God is light. Light. There's no darkness in God at all. God never gets grumpy, never has a bad day, never is not cognizant of everything always, all the time. But we humans, on the other hand, we are real good at pretending. Real good. We can say we have fellowship with God when in fact we don't. We can say we're, we're tight with God when in fact we're not. We can play the part of a spiritual person who's enlightened and all the rest and yet be walking in darkness. Walking in the light, first and foremost, is, is where we walk and not how we walk. Walking in the light is walking in the light of God, walking in the light of his word. How we walk is impacted by where we walk. Why? Because light illuminates and reveals things for what they are. That's what light does. God is light, and when we walk in the light of God, things are revealed for what they actually are. When I was living in Southern California back in the, in the early 80s, um, I worked for a, a trash disposal company called Hamlin Disposal. And it was located in Downey, right off of Stuart and Gray uh, Road. And there would be two guys per truck. So me and my partner would take off at 6 a.m. in the morning. And we would try and be back in the yard by 2 in the afternoon if we could. Uh, but to, to do that, we had to really book it. So, so sometimes I drove, sometimes I was on the outside of the truck. So what, what you do is if you're the guy not driving, you're on the outside of the truck. You're hanging on to the side, right? There's a bar there to hang on to, and you're cruising down the street. And the driver drives you up and kind of stops real fast, kind of throws you forward. Boom, boom, boom. You go grab it and throw it in and jump back on and you get this rhythm. You get this groove going so that you can be done on time. Maybe you get done ahead of time. Then you got a little relaxation time when you get back to the yard. So that's what we did. But I remember one particular stop. The, the, the trash truck stops, throws me forward. I run uh, to the trash cans and knock off the first lid. But when that lid came off, the, the lid came off of the, I just knocked it off. I was, I was jolted with a stench. It, I mean, it knocked me back. And, and I backed off, man. I backed way off. And I saw the, the lid was laying on the ground and, and the trash can is open now. And on the inside of the lid that was facing up and in the trash can, there was this white... It looked like rice, but it was, it was moving. Yeah. Maggots. Lots and lots of maggots. And so because that trash can hadn't been dumped for, I guess, a very, very long time, 
Maggots were able to proliferate and flourish in the darkness. But I tell you what, when the light came shining down upon, I swear I could hear them scream. Listen, walking in the light means that the maggots inside of us, and we all have them, are going to be exposed for what they are. Now, it doesn't, you know, walking in the light doesn't mean sinless living. Don't mistake that. We don't, the Bible doesn't teach Christian perfectionism that you can arrive at a place where you just don't sin anymore, at least for long stretches of time. That's just not biblical. There are lots of sins in us, folks. Plenty that we don't know about. Now you go, well, if we don't know about them, are we responsible for them? I think that's the wrong question to ask. The psalmist said it this way. Psalm 19.12, who has full knowledge of his errors? Who has that? None of us do. God does, right? So the psalmist then says, make me clean from secret evil. So you hear what's going on there? Pride and arrogance and envy and lust and covetousness and slander and bitterness and lies and dishonesty and greed and gluttony and sloth and gossip and adultery and fornication, boasting, complaining. All of these are spiritual maggots that fester and flourish in the darkness. But when we walk in the light, they're exposed for what they are. They're repugnant, they're stinky, they're completely undesirable, but we'll never get completely free from them on this side of eternity. So wise is the person who does what the psalmist was saying to do and goes, Lord, show me. Show me what I don't see. I know I've got sin in me, stuff that I'm, I'm just blind to. And Lord, I want to shine your light in me so that I can confess those things and get free of them. In the words of David in Psalm 139, his prayer, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. So we don't live in denial of the fact that there's stinky things in us. We lean right in and say, God, show me so that I can confess to you. And when we confess the power of that sin, is diminished and we mature and we're blessed and joyful. Confession leads to cleansing, which leads to worship, which leads to joy and freedom. So their repentance and confession, Nehemiah and the people of God in that day, it turns into a worshipful prayer that highlights 
the attributes of God, and it is so powerful. Um, we're not going to get through it this morning. I know we won't. Um, we'll, we'll continue on next week and all this. But I'm, I'm going to just start throwing out the attributes that are coming up. Just, just picture this. All these uh, guys are on the stairs now, the leaders of Israel. They're on the stairs that lead up to the platform. And, uh, and they say with a loud voice, stand up and bless the Lord. Verse 6, stand up and bless the Lord. And they begin to go through the greatness of God, his, his character, and his awesomeness. So what, what, what are the, the, the glories of his character? Well, I'm going to get as many to you as I can this morning. The first one, they say, our God is eternal. Our God is eternal. That's verse 6. You are the Lord. Lord, all caps in your Bible. Right? And that means it's translated from Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name of God. Whenever there's all caps, the Lord is in all caps, it means Yahweh is the Hebrew underneath it. It's the name that God gave when Moses asked him, Look, God, who do I say sent me? And God said, I am that I am, which became translated as Yahweh. I am that I am. It's the, the tetragrammaton. Uh, it's known in theological circles. Tetra means four. Grammaton means word. So, so God's name is the purest four-letter word that there is ever. And so here's the problem. The Jews always refused to pronounce it. It was too holy, too awesome, too sacred for polluted lips. So they would uh, substitute other words, Adonai, and so on, for God's personal name. So... Um, so we, in Yahweh or the Greek rendition, Jehovah, we've added vowels to make it pronounceable. So we don't know how it was pronounced. Moses knows because <laughs> he heard it, but we don't necessarily. But it doesn't matter. We know what it means. It means that God is eternal. I am that I am. That I have no beginning and no end. It's not primarily that he's everlasting, but that he is independent of time and creation altogether. God can't be measured by years or revolutions of the earth or cycles around the sun. He works and he moves within creation, but he's completely separate from creation. So there's no past or future tense with God. There's no was or will be with God. All that God was to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is today. All that he will be to future generations, he is now. He has nothing to learn, nothing to acquire, nothing to become. He alone is reality. He's the source of all things. Everything comes from him. Everything belongs to him. Everything is ruled by him. Everything will be judged by him. That's our God. Secondly, yeah, amen. Our God is the only God. He's the only God. Isaiah 9, or, uh, Nehemiah 9, 6, you are the Lord, you alone. So our God, the God of the Bible, is the only God. There are not many ways. There's one way. There are not many gods. There's one God. There are not many saviors. There's one savior. Psalm 45, 5, I am the Lord. There is no other besides me. There is no God. There is no one like God. There's no one who compares to God. Our God is the only God. Number three, our God is the creator. 
the creator. Again, verse six, you made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. So our God created everything, literally everything. He created the universe with all of the galaxies and stars and planets and so on. He created the earth with the topography, the mountains and the rivers, the seas, the oceans, the deserts and the plains. He created the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, the fish of the sea. He created man in his own image. He created man. There's no purpose apart from God. There's no meaning apart from God. There's no value apart from God. Number four, our God is the sustainer. He's the sustainer. Verse six, you preserve all of them. You preserve all of them. Now we're, we're told that gravity uh, keeps the earth at the exact appropriate distance from the sun. Gravity also keeps the moon in its proper place at night. Gravity keeps all the planets and stars and galaxies in their appropriate proximities to one another. And so gravity keeps us from just floating up off the ground right now, right? This thing called gravity. Now, nobody really knows what gravity is. It's a theory. We just know that somehow everything in the universe keeps its proper distance and everything uh, from everything else by some sort of force. It says of Jesus in John 1:17, in him all things hold together. If, if I understand that verse, and I think I do, it means that the Lord is actively holding things together, which by the way means he's holding you together. Your life is being held together by the Lord, your body itself. They don't even know what holds the atom together. Again, theories. Fifthly, our God is worshiped by angels. He's worshiped by angels. Verse six, the host of heaven worships you. Every glimpse that we get into heaven, I mean, every glimpse, you find that it's a, it's a place of massive worship going on. Like incredible worship, loud anthems are being sung and weird angelic creatures are falling on their faces in, in just full-on worship of, of their God. For instance, Revelation 5.11, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands. So, so think, this is bigger than the Super Bowl game. This is millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of angelic creatures that are awesome. And they are all saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So that, that anthem and the anthem of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. Those anthems, they, they go forth in the realm of heaven continually. It's happening right now as we speak. It'll be happening when you go to bed tonight. 
It'll still be going when you wake up in the morning. The amazing thing about this is that when we choose to lift our voices in worship to God is that our voices are now joining the heavenly chorus. And, and you, you're gonna get, at least from time to time, a sense of being connected to heaven when you worship. There's a sense of transcendence, a sense of man, I'm in another realm right now. My life is hid with Christ in God. That's where my life is. And right now, I'm praising God, I'm worshiping God, the angels are praising God and worshiping God, we're all praising God and worshiping God, and I feel connected, man. I got a sense of who I really am. Sixthly, our God keeps his promises. That's verse seven. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You have found his heart faithful before you and you made with him the covenant to give you his offspring, or to give to his offspring rather, and you have kept your promise for you are righteous. <coughs> God keeps his promises. It's brought to us in, it's brought us into, rather, covenant with God. The covenant with Abraham was unconditional. It was a one-way covenant. I'm just going to do this. I'm going to make your name great. Your descendants are going to be more than the sands of the sea, more than the stars of the sky. I'm just going to do it. God will never change his mind about Because through Christ, you have entered into this one-way covenant. Because you are in Christ, now all of his promises are stamped, yes, amen. So his promises are yours if you are in Christ this morning. They're not a, they're not a good chance God's going to keep that promise. Nope. It's a yes. Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie or son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, will he not fulfill it? The answer, of course he'll fulfill it. What does God promise us? Well, let's just take a for instance, Isaiah 41:10. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's a promise. I will do that. God says to you, Christian, this morning, Psalm 138.7, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. What's your purpose? God's going to fulfill it. He's in process of fulfilling it right now. Colossians 4.17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison. So whatever the difficult thing that you're going through right now, and there's many of you going through difficult things, it's, it's creating 
wealth in eternity that is beyond your imagining. It's beyond any earthly comparison. You know, the only thing we can compare to is, you know, material stuff, cars and houses and boats and money and whatever. It's like, eh, you can't even compare it. Your suffering is making you rich in heaven. That's a promise. Jesus promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who started a work in you will carry it out to completion. You who are doubting, you who are struggling, you have God's promise. He started it, he's gonna finish it. In fact, Romans 8.28 says, all things work together for the good of those who love God, uh, who are called according to his purpose. Everything is ultimately factoring in, even stuff in category bad. It's factoring in for good ultimately, for your good and for God's glory. Romans 8, 38, I'm convinced, here's a promise, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor neither height nor depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's nothing, literally nothing, that can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ. There's nothing, not death, not life, not a demon, not a Satan. There's no circumstance, there's no health issue, there's no you know, difficult time. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. God that's in Christ for you. That's a promise. And God's promises are what? Yes and amen. Because the little doubting Thomas in you is like, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. You need to go hunting for yabbits. Kill them yabbits. Oh, there's so many promises. But listen to this, Jesus has promised to us in John 14, in my Father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, would I not have told you? So I am going away in order to prepare a place for you. And if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you will be with me always. We have promises from God. Once you say yes to Jesus in your life, his promises are always yes and amen to you. Listen, he can't love you any more or any less than what he does right now. There's nothing you can do to undo God's love for you. It's impossible. Seventh, our God hears our cries. 
You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and you heard their cry. You heard their cry. God is a compassionate father. He hears our cries. He knows when we're in difficulty or in bondage or desperate or in that place in life where everything just seems so out of control and everything seems to have gone south and so God hears our cry. He answers our prayers. One more and we're done. God makes a way where there is no way. So verse 11, you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. After the angel of death came, Pharaoh's, you know, stubbornness finally was cracked and he relented and, and Moses began leading God's people out of Egypt. And they had gone three days journey and they had made it out to Etham, which uh, was on the edge of the desert. They were just a short march away from, from getting to the actual desert where uh, chariots couldn't follow. They would bog down in the, the sand, right? So they were close to being, to being free. So once they got to that place at Etham, to the edge, the Lord spoke to Moses and, and gave them some surprising instructions concerning the direction that they would go from there. And the Lord said, lead the people south where Pharaoh and his pursuing army, well, God didn't say this, but it's what worked out, where they'll be able to trap you. But the Bible explicitly says there in Exodus that God led them there. The pillar of cloud led them there. So, so God led them to a place where there was no way out, seemingly. They're trapped. They don't know what to do. They can't run for it. They can't swim for it. They can't climb for it. They're hemmed in. So God led them to a predicament, a circumstance that was beyond their ability to, to escape or to fix. I want to suggest to you that's what he's done with you at some point in your life. You've realized that my life is out of control, that this, I can't fix this situation. I can't finagle my way out of it. And just as the pillar of cloud led the Israel to the edge of the Red Sea, so too you've been led by the Holy Spirit to that tight spot that you found yourself in. Or maybe you find yourself in right now. You go, man, I don't see a way out. And it's beyond your control. So why? Why would God do that? Well, a couple of clear reasons. Number one, he, he, he would do it to test your faith. A faith that hasn't been tested can't be trusted. So it says in Deuteronomy 8.2, you shall remember all the ways which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to prove you or test you. That's the same thing. So don't think test as a pass-fail test like school. No, it's to prove you. It's to purify you. So it's like when metal is purified, it's tested. It goes into a, 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 an afflic a furnace of affliction and it comes out pure on the other side. 
So God leads us into difficult places in order to prove us and to humble us, but secondly, to maximize his glory. So the Lord brings us to places that are beyond us so that his power can be revealed to us. He wants to show us that through experience, his sufficiency for every situation. Does God ever give you more than you can handle? Any honest people here this morning? I'm saying yes. He's many times given me more than I can handle. That's beyond me to bear. He's put me in situations that I had no human way out. I couldn't control it. But our God will then make a way where there is no way. This is what God does. What did he say to Moses and the children of Israel as they were backed up against the Red Sea? Run for it. <laughs> Swim for it. No. He says, stand still and see the salvation of God. Christian, God wants you to stand still and trust him. He wants to show you how great he is. He wants to show you what, what he can do. Our God makes a way where there is no way. We need to land the plane here this morning. Um, we'll continue down this road next week. But this, this powerful, worshipful prayer that's being prayed by the people of God back then, it began with a loud call uh, that came from the leaders of Israel. They said in Nehemiah 9, 6, stand up and bless the Lord. Stand up and bless the Lord. Come on, church. Stand up and bless the Lord. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son. time together just the voices praise God from whom all blessings flow we love you God praise him all creatures here below praise him above ye Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. As you make your way to the communion table this morning, let the Lord search you.
Let him find in you any hidden wicked way you maybe haven't realized. Confess your sin. Get free. Get clean. Receive the bread and the cup. If you're not a Christian here this morning and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, I want you right now, this is your moment. Bow your head. Pray to Jesus right now. Just tell him, Lord, I believe in you. Lord, I need you. Come into my heart and wash my sins away. Make me new. I give you my life. Be my Lord and my Savior. In your name I pray.